Hello and welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Duncan French. Duncan is the vice president for the UFC. He's an absolute titan in the world of sports science and performance enhancement. A man whose remarkable career reads like an adventure novel of achievement and innovation. Duncan is an internationally recognized expert in sports science, strength and conditioning, and high performance coaching. His journey is a symphony of groundbreaking research, practical successes, and a relentless pursuit of excellence. Duncan has cultivated his skills on both sides of the Atlantic. Hailing from the United Kingdom, he embarked on a journey that led him to some of the most prestigious institutions in the world. Currently within the UFC, he's busy elevating mixed martial arts to new heights of athleticism and scientific practice. It's no exaggeration to say that he's transformed the way fighters prepare, train and recover, enhancing the sport's overall competitiveness. Some of Duncan's career highlights include key roles in premier organizations such as the English Institute of Sport, the NFL's Jacksonville Jaguars and the New York Yankees. His expertise has earned him accolades and invitations to speak at conferences and events worldwide, cementing his status as a global influencer in the realm of sports science and performance optimization. In today's episode, we'll discuss what it's like working with the likes of UFC superstars such as Conor McGregor or Khabib Nurmagomedov, how to gain a physical and mental edge, and the standards in physical preparation in elite sport. Stand by for some knowledge. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Duncan French, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you, buddy. Good to good to reconnect. It's been a while, so I appreciate the invite. Oh, mate, I'm delighted. I've been really looking forward to this one. Uh, and a lot of people I've been speaking to uh, about the podcast have been too. I mean, I wanted to kick off with, you've excelled as this human performance expert. Like, where, where, What was the first moment that you sort of realized you could potentially pursue a career in this space? Oh man, I mean, great, great question. You dig in. It, it, I think, I think sometimes we fall into these kind of positions, and you know, I've you know got a lot of friends in the industry, and you speak to them, and you know, we we all kind of have the the joke that we're all failed athletes, right? So you know, <laughs> there there is a little bit of that. You know, you take your own kind of personal ambitions and athletic career as far as you go, and 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 you know, we don't all get the the pleasure of being an Olympian or a professional, you know, athlete. Um, but the draw and the attraction and the the excitement and and what it means on a day to day basis to be around teammates or colleagues and you know just what that that emotional connection that a childhood of playing sports brings is um, it, it stays sports? with you right. What were the sports? I mean, I was always a soccer player. Um, okay. I was, you know, I was a soccer player and obviously um, then moved into. Um, I played a little bit of American football, actually, at a very high level in the UK and, and oh, nice. throughout Europe. Um, and that was ironic, being a, being an English guy and playing American football. Um, but I played, you know, I was captain of the, the Great Britain junior, student, senior international team, went to multiple European championships and things, and then dropped into rugby. And, yeah, but, I've, I, you know, like any kid, I've, I've done everything. I've done martial arts and, you know, played around with different things. So, um yeah, it was it was when you get to the point where this is not going to happen for me. But how can I keep connected and and chase medals? You know, chase championships, chase trophies, um, and and then you start to look at your career. You know, and when you go into university or making those decisions about how can I kind of continue to make my my hobby, my 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 the things that excite me, my day to day life, and I guess that's where it's pollinated from. Brilliant. And and can you give us a brief? Because you've you've worked 
with so many sports. Could you give us a brief overview of the the different areas you've worked in? Yeah, it, it, again, I've been blessed. I think I've worked with over forty different Olympic or professional sports in in my career to date, and 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 some of those, you know, again, look look plays a great a great role in it. You know, I I ended up at the English Institute of Sport, which is an inst- institute, right? So it supports many different uh, athletes from different sporting, um, you know, styles and and systems. So. You know, across my career through the institute system, I've been exposed to everything from women's rugby to rowing to highboard diving to, um, you know, weightlifting to, you know, sprinting and jumping, horizontal and vertical jumps, um, you know, soccer, different things like that. I was in the English Premier League for a little bit of time, then moved into um, more management in the northwest of England in, in, in Manchester. So then you're into track cycling and you're around netball and squash, Paralympic swimming, you know, all these different domains that you're kind of exposed to as you kind of develop your core skill set as a, as a strength and conditioning coach and you try to apply them to different um, end users. And then obviously I then came back to, I did my PhD in the States back in the day, but I wanted to come back to America and now I then dropped into, you know, the University of Notre Dame was my first kind of return back to the US. So then we had 28 different sports, um, many of which are American sports. So, you know, you're into baseball and softball and, you know, fencing and lacrosse and, you know, all these other um, American football, obviously, all these other sports. And now I've landed at the UFC, which is, um, you know, combat athletes and mixed martial artists. So, uh, yeah, it's um, it's been a trip. It's been a ride. And what what do you think of the strengths that have enabled you to capitalize on that opportunity? You very humbly sort of use that word luck, but it's inc- some of the roles you've had are incredibly competitive to get. I mean, the one I think there's a lot of young guys out there that would and and women, of course, that would probably chop their right arm off to 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 get the job you're in right now. Mm. Yeah, I think you you know what? Well, number number one, you know, I always credit um, I credit my coaching skills. Um, to being a child actor, um, which is interesting, right? But when I was a kid, I was a bit of a show off. I was like high energy and my parents wanted to ch- kind of channel my my intensity, right? So they sent me to a Saturday morning drama group, you know, and just tried to do some acting. And I became a really good character actor. I was on TV. I did radio commercials and things like this. And, and I won I competitions. I I'll have to get some of those up. <laughs> right. Yeah, you'll go into the archives to try and find some of those. But the reason why I say that is because, like I say, I, I got good at playing characters, at playing roles. And what that did... I think it's give me the capability to to adapt and flex and 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 create different interactions with people um and and you know move my style move my approach rather than having a, a rigid approach that is like one size fits all my my skill has always been to you know, be able to talk up into the boardroom, to talk horizontally to my peers, to talk to athletes uh, and, and and give them messaging in a way that they can comprehend and understand and take complex principles of strength and conditioning and physical performance and dilute it down and make it transferable to someone that's not an expert, you know? So I think that that's been a skill which I've just brought from, you know, where, where I've grown up from. Um, and I think, you know, it's, I always say we're not in a sports industry, we're in a people industry. And I like to think I'm, I can connect with people. I like to think that it's that kind of 
Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people mentality. You know, it's the 50-50 relationships. We, we, I've got to take something from this interface and, you know, the person or organization that I'm interacting with needs to feel that as well. So, you know, at the start of it is make, making sure that people see value and trust in, in what you're bringing to the table. And then you've got to shuttle at home with technical expertise and a knowledge set that they say, all right, well, this, this person's highly competent and is bringing new innovative ideas and ways of thinking and working around our particular domain or our sport, um, which is interesting and intriguing to them. So they want to learn more. So it's a combination of things for me. And when I kind of interrogate the way I've tried to do it is it's always been about, you know, diversity of communication, I think is a, is a critical piece um, and then diversity of skill set. You know, I didn't. I, I've never considered myself a one-trick pony. I'm not the, you know, the weightlifting guy. Or I'm not the the bioenergetics guy. Like, I, like, I think I can do quite a lot of different things. I think I have many strings to my bow at different levels through, you know, PhD and research and academia, but also applied experience. And you know that, like, that's what I believe kept me where I'm going. Um, is because. I can always pivot my skills and my expertise to be interesting and, and attractive to a different body or a different organization. Absolutely. And in terms of that development phase as you're mastering the art of performance, um, yeah. was there anyone that was particularly influential or anyone that you sort of looked up to as you sort of went through that journey from aspirational young man to Right now, I'm leading programs at top sports teams. Yeah, I mean, I think we call it, if we're if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can all look back through our lives and our careers and say, you know, that that's been a mentor or a pseudo pseudo mentor or someone that I've respected, and and you know that that's everything from my dad being, you know, he was very athletic as a kid and he kind of always supported me, you know, pushed me, but supported. It was more of a supportive environment. Like, okay, we're going to go to practice. You want to try this sport? Yeah, we'll try a different sport. Like, let's figure things out. So, you know, my dad and my, my, my parents have always been very supportive. But then you think back to, you know, you're under 15 soccer coach and, you know, how he you know, influenced the team and brought energy and excitement to what we were doing on a Tuesday night when it's raining and pissing it down and how, you know, how can you make it fun? You know, like all of those types of things. Um, but certainly in terms of mentors, you know, my PhD advisor, Dr. William Kramer, is someone who I would absolutely define as a mentor to me. Um, he was someone that, you know, instilled, you know, work ethic, productivity, um, you know, inquisition and and and, you know, understanding challenging problems and trying to figure them out um you know he he was seminal in kind of my building my work ethic and then you know you're around you know other other coaches you know people that i would say are my peers um to some extent so whether that's you know paul winspur or jeremy moody or um you know nick grantham these people that are friends you know they're my, they're my buddies but they're also like mentoring me in a in a, in a pseudo way that you know i look to what they're doing and i i try and compare and contrast and, and say how can i be better so yeah i think mentorship and and you know who points in the right direction is an interesting interesting concept and then pivoting slightly like the ufc i mean what a fascinating organization full yeah. stop i mean i remember as a kid watching hoist gracie with my dad on you know videotapes uh, uh, and then you look at where it's come now it, i mean it's one of the most fashionable 
companies out there, innovative, it's rapid growth. I mean, can you just describe what it's like working for an organization like that full stop? Yeah, it's it, it, it it's it's fantastic. And again, you talk about mentors. I mean, you, you look at Dana White, like, you know, and, and my immediate boss, who's the CEO of the company, Lawrence Epstein, that they're people that are, are aspirational to me. You know, like I look at what they've done, how they are creative thinkers, how they've built the UFC and, you know, navigated the hurdles of what the public perception of cage fighting in and, and mixed martial arts is and, and, and made it mainstream and built it across the years. You know, that that's... That's really aspirational. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very dynamic company. Um, and at its heart, it's a sports entertainment company. Now, that the reason why I say that is because traditionally I've always worked in the Olympic system, which is also entertainment for fans, but it's just a different culture. It's a different um, set of values, maybe. Um, you know, we, we're obviously pursuing high performance and we want to have the world's best product in respect to combat athletes. Um, but also the entertainment piece, the promotional piece that comes with it. It's very different, you know, in terms of working with Great Britain Taekwondo on an Olympic setting, which is a combat sport, and then mixed martial artists in the UFC setting, which is also a combat sport. But it's about a, a promotion and an entertainment and a and a revenue piece that comes with it. That, that that that's a really interesting dynamic that's taught me a lot in these six and a half years that I've been here. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it, the, the UFC is complex because we've got 670 odd fighters around the world. Um, you get exposed to so many different cultures and people and language and, you know, processes and behaviors. And that's fascinating. And it's really, you know, I really use that to shape our operational system. It's something which I've, I've learned a lot in the, the last six years, which is about how do we make things valuable to the, to the customer, to the client, to the end user who is the athlete. Um, you know, it's very different how you do that to a, a Russian from Dagestani with a wrestling background to someone from um, China with a Sander or a Wushu background to someone from Poland with a kickboxing background. Like you, you just got to think about, all the time, how are you making things relevant to the way that they see the world and the optic that they they use? So, again, coming back to systems that pivot and flex and target and use strategies to target very productive outcomes. The UFC has been like brilliant for that for me in my career and expanding my skill set and thinking about how are our performance systems truly truly impactful because i think sometimes as performance professionals we look at the data we see a problem we think we're writing the world's best training plan and we deliver the training plan and think it's going to be engaged and and and, and every athlete is going to think that's the best thing going that's not the, that's not the case at all and we're naive if we're thinking that we we every level of that how we collect data how we interpret and manage data how we share information the type of techniques and tools that we use to give into information to person a versus person b what their desire to accept it and believe it we can give them all the objective data and insights they're going but people will always refer back revert back to emotions and um you know heuristic decision making in many cases so like how do we connect with the emotional side of delivering information too so that that's something which outside of just working with what i believe is the most demanding sporting arena in all of sports and again i've worked with 40 different pro sports 
these guys and girls are amazing at what they put their bodies through. And it's also taught me a lot about resilience and like overreaching and overtraining paradigms. But, um, you know, just the diversity and how your performance philosophies and paradigms need to be able to adapt and flex and change, I think, is, is what the UFC has really brought to my career. I mean, yeah, what a constraint to have to force that out of you as a practitioner. I mean, mm. in terms of the problem set that, that your you and your team are there to solve from a performance perspective to those 600-odd athletes, plus that I guess they've all got coaching teams as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what would you say are the sort of the big two or three problem sets that they're, 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 they maybe expect from you or you and Dana um, perceive are most important to solve for them? Well, I, I mean, I go back to the pollination of the Performance Institute as an entity. So before 2017, um, the UFC didn't have a high performance infrastructure. It's a promotions company. It would sell tickets and it would put events on around the world and sell those tickets and then move on to the next city. And in 2017, they created what I manage, which is now the third biggest business unit in the whole of the UFC, is the Performance Institute. That that The way I define it is it's just a high-performance service arm of the greater UFC. So sports medicine, you know, strength and conditioning, science, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why the Performance Institute was pollinated was because they were, in some scenarios, losing money. If an athlete, you know, a big pay-per-view event, if an athlete dropped off a main card, due to a weight miss or a a last minute preventable injury or something that could have been uh, mitigated, then that's the financial hit to the company. So the way that I was essentially sold my role and sold my job is around asset management. We're We're in the business of protecting and promoting and developing and growing the asset. And, you know, that's a human asset, a human resource, which is our athletes and our fighters. Um, so, you know, what, what we do on a day-to-day basis is all about providing the complex and chaotic needs of a very disparate and diverse athlete clientele mechanisms to help them. Now, the big rocks in that space are what I've already mentioned. You know, we're a weight classification sport. That's different to the English Premier League or the NRL or the NFL or the NBA like we, we, our athletes have to compete at certain weight classifications. And if they don't, they'll lose a lot of money and we'll lose a lot of money. So, you know, that's something which if we implement better systems and education and methodology, you can prevent, potentially eradicate it. Like as a, as a, as a idea, you could remove missed weights, but it happens, right? Because there's people using different tactics or kind of some archaic methodology or not really aware of the science and how your body works and they'll, they'll miss weight. So that, that's a big one. And then obviously we're in a combative sport where collision and combat and, um, you know, injury is part and parcel of it. So how are you trying to, we're not removing injury, but how do we mitigate or lower injury rates? How do we expedite return to play um, with, you know, the latest science and methodologies and approaches no, they're, they're the two big rocks. And the third big rock is obviously we want to create a great product. Again, to fall back on how I've been shaped in my mentality now, it's a promotion. We, we The UFC wants to be the leader in the field in combat sport. So we need a great product. We need our athletes performing at the top, top elite level in the octagon for fan engagement. And how do we do that? And how we can... Um, 
advance the sport and 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 you know as a as a philosophy take the sport and continue to evolve it and grow it and accelerate it that's kind of uh the big mandate you know those kind of three or four things are the mandate that we have on a day-to-day basis fascinating and and in terms of the the 600 odd athletes that you've sort of got under your wing what's the process for for selecting them into the organization yeah it's a good question. I'm not sure I I fully understand that, right? And and I don't say that flippantly, um, because in my space of you know long term athlete development, you probably should say this guy knows exactly how people are recruited into the UFC. The reality of it is, um, is that unlike you know the the US kind of a university system, um, where you have a draft at a university and it pushes you into the NFL or the NBA, or British soccer teams that have academy systems. People are, 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 you know, athletes are coming into the UFC through many, many different mechanisms in different ways. Some of them might be former Olympians. You know, Ronda Rousey was a judo player. She had multiple, you know, Olympic medals and she got recruited to come into the UFC. Um, other athletes might be, you know, Olymp- freestyle wrestlers in, in collegiate NC2A um, sport and they might win multiple national titles like Bo Nickel. Um, is one of our up-and-coming athletes, was a multiple national champion at Penn State freestyle wrestling and now has has come into the UFC. Other athletes are fighting on lower-level promotions, you know, professional promotions, Cage Warriors in the UK, UAE Warriors, you know, different different promotions around the world. Um, And when they start tearing up their opponents and going on a, a, you know, a run of wins, then, you know, our scouts and particular kind of, um, managers and and um, you know people out in the community start to send those 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 videos to our matchmakers and say you know have a look at this person in in Thai boxing or kickboxing or you know samba sam, sambo wrestling in Russia or whatever it may be so it's a really complex way that they end up in the UFC um, certainly what we've developed in in our facility in Shanghai China is an academy system um and we're going to do that again in October in Mexico City so we're formalizing talent development pathways under the umbrella of the UFC Performance Institute in certain territories to try and elevate the the the, the standards of um athletes in those those countries so yeah it's 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 a really complex way of how they end up here which again coming back to my role and our team and how we try to look at all right development across time in in an athletic you know taking your athletic potential and optimizing that it means that people come into the UFC at many different levels on that kind of bell curve of like development development optimization at the top and then falling off and past your best you know, we get people that come into the UFC that are already way past their best, but, you know, the UFC wants to, you know, get a new opponent or find a new fighter. Um, and at the same time, we get, you know, 18-year-olds, you know, less than developed, you know, athletes coming in. And and, and now we're looking at, right, well, what's the next uh, seven, eight years of your career look like? And in, and in terms of the standards that the UFC expects from the people within its... Um... I guess on the program, is it purely based on their performance in the ring, or are there are, are there set standards and benchmarks to meet outside of the ring? For instance, if they are going to be put through a, a movement screen or a weight loss, and is there any discipline around that? 
So again, just the dynamics of our company and the way the business model works, which again is very different to Manchester United or the New York Yankees or whatever it may be. Manchester United own the rights to the players, so they can mandate and essentially they 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 can tell their athletes what to do and when to do and how to do it. Every single athlete on the UFC roster is an independent contractor. They they sign bout agreements that say, all right. James, we're going to assign you to a four-fight agreement. So we'll guarantee you four fights over the next two, three years. And we're going to give you X amount of money for each one of those fights. The rest of the time, you're on your own. Like You can do what you want. Like So in your gym back in the UK, all right, then we're, we're not, you know, Dana White and the UFC is not influencing that. Now, what we, we as Performance Institute try and put ourselves right in the middle. We try and provide a resource that you can tap into it as and when you so desire. So, so you're an asset that they can leverage to optimize Correct. performance. Yeah, so be, yeah, we, we don't pay them a salary apart from the, the money for the fight, but they can tap into this infrastructure free of charge at no cost and get resources um, and services that they might not otherwise be able to afford. So that's kind of a big a big part of the puzzle. And from an athlete's perspective, then, what would be the typical way that they would look to leverage the Institute? I mean, it's, I've heard incredible things about the actual site itself and the setup. Yeah. Um, but what would a typical UFC athlete look to leverage and, and how might that look over a period, of, you know, in, in a camp, say, going into a fight? Yeah, we, so we, we have three domains that we kind of operate in. Number one, in person. We're in Las Vegas, okay? We're also in Shanghai, China, so you can go there if you want to, if you're on that side of the world. But you can come and visit our operation and get services. Number two, um, remotely. Well, so we'll, we'll, we'll do interactions and remote coaching. We have uh, meal delivery systems that we can send out, um, you know, calorically managed meals. Um, we look at wearable technology that we deploy um, and do different things to try and con- keep that connectivity going when you're not essentially with us day to day in person. And then the third layer is event support. So I send five of my staff to every single fight week. So if you're on the UFC roster, you you will interact with our with our staff at fight week. That's everything from we can cook every single meal for you. I have two chefs that I send to every single event and we'll prepare every single meal. We'll take that worry or that challenge off your mind. So if you're from Poland and you get booked on a fight in Brazil and you're like, well, what what the hell am I going to eat? What, what restaurants do I go to? And I'm also trying to make weight. So I need to manage my calories and all those different types of things. And I don't know if this food is good for me or if it's going to challenge my weight descent. We'll take all that off off your thought process and we also have um you know dietitians that will manage that and medical providers at the event so in person remotely and at event support is kind of where we do our work but the in, the interface interaction is very diverse it's everything from people coming in person for two days just doing some testing some diagnostics some assessments and then taking that information back to their gym and using it independently through to kind of the normal visitation is like a, a, a mini camp strategy, you know, anywhere from two weeks to four weeks, um, they'll come and kind of base themselves at the PI and really embed themselves in our systems and our services. Some people do kind of eight week fight camps in our facility and tap into everything as they prepare for a fight. And then other people, you know, might blow out their ACL or PCL or MCL and the lipsticks from home and they'll come and live in Las Vegas for nine months and get free medical services with all the supporting infrastructure around it um, free of charge. 
that's a big deal um, when you come to you know medical insurance and things like that in the US. Oh, yeah. So it it's it's a very diverse kind of system we operate and again comes back to the system has to pivot and flex to meet all these specific requirements of every single athlete we don't have cookie cutter programming everything we do is custom and bespoke and it 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 is done on an individual basis in terms of some of the there's obviously just global icons that the sports produced this one that jumps to mind for me is of course like the conor mcgregor Mm -hmm. i mean when you're looking at an athlete like Connor and his preparation if you had the magic wand in terms of complete access to him um and and complete responsibility and ownership of his um preparation into physical preparation or psychological preparation into say a camp what are the sort of things you're looking at um well well first and foremost for any athlete it's like what resources do they already have available to them Connor's blessed because he's had a great career and he's you know he's got you know money that he can wrap himself with his own strength coach, his own therapist, you know, his own um, dietitians and things like that. And then what we'll do is we'll obviously interact, you know, and support the stakeholders. So, you know, the, the ring of stakeholders around Conor McGregor in the middle of, of that kind of system that he's created as the CEO of his own company, we will we'll have a seat at the table, hopefully. Um, but we understand that, all right, his strength coach is going to be directing his program. So let's connect our strength coach with his strength coach and see if we're aligned, see if we've got any cool ideas and things that we've learned, any data or information that we can kind of present to them that where the sport is developing and growing. Same thing, you know, with the therapist. Do they, do they need specialist medical skills that we can offer and they might not have? Um, and therefore, right, you can come and engage with our services or are you doing well wherever it may be? Conor McGregor is kind of at the pinnacle of that because he's got everybody. But there's, you know, there's hundreds of athletes that don't have anybody. Right. And we'll we'll try and wrap ourselves in entirety around this athlete and give them all all the services that they need. It's kind of like the law of thirds. Right. If you take the whole roster of 600 and whatever, you know, one third ask for everything because they might not necessarily have good infrastructure and services. So they'll really try and lean on the Performance Institute to help them gain competitive advantage, to help them with medical requirements, you know, dietary requirements, feeding, you know, whatever it may be, training, psychology. A third kind of dip the toe in certain areas of our operation. So they might say, I'm, I'm, I'm good over here. I, I've got my own dietitian and I've got my own strength coach, but man, this left shoulder is really killing me can I come and see your medical providers? And then they'll just tap into one part of our operation. And then the other third, we might rarely engage with because they're either well-resourced or we'll just do the competition support for them when they come and fight at events. So again, it's, there's a lot of variety. It's not one size fits all. And our, our system, I think does a good job of saying, Hey, listen, you, you can have everything. You can take everything we offer and we'll deliver it to the best of our abilities. Or if you don't choose to engage with us, don't worry. We're, we're busy with enough people over here. But when you are ready to engage, we'll we'll be ready as well. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And in terms of that third that that almost do want it all, what yeah. what's on the menu? What sort of things are you looking at? I guess there's the obvious things like strength and conditioning, the sort of therapy, nutrition. We've talked about. Um, are there, what, what 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 might be the steps you take them through? 
I mean, well, first of all, people love free food. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so we, we bought, we brought culinary services as kind of a vertical pillar on, we, we already had dietitians. Just a sales technique. But yeah, like yeah. You, you use the food to open the door and, and then you get yeah. into the bigger thing. But I mean, yeah, often it's like um, strategy. And I say that strategy is, is kind of a, a bigger paradigm because number one, it's an individual sport, right? And everyone is looking for competitive advantage. And if you close the octagon door and you haven't done the work, that's on you. If I go on a soccer field, there's 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 10 other guys that if I'm having a 60% day that they'll pull pull up the other you know 40%, right? Um, but it's a sport of consequences in MMA, right? So if you haven't done the body of work and you haven't prepared optimally, you'll get found out pretty quickly. What that means is that they usually explore and are keen to explore ways of understanding how they can advance, how they can get ahead. And, you know, like, let's be honest, combat is pretty spit and sawdust, right? It's the most granular level competition there is. Fight somebody. But in this day and age, you know, and under, you know, as the, the modern era is kind of coming through, they're starting to understand what can science and, and what's training science? What's the latest methods? Can you tell me what the latest methods is? Can you tell me where I'm at? So, you know, all right, let's do some testing. Let's give you some information that will make you and your coach be able to get to decisions quicker. Um, you know, we can really break down your fight and show you where you've lost or won your last fights. If you've got a new opponent, um, you know, we're not sharing their information, but we can share, you know, weight class tendencies um, and, and you can then start strategizing after that. So, again, the things that they come and seek from us are, you know, a lot of information around making weight because it's integral to the sport. And how do they do that? Because, again, if you if you listen to the media, it's the fight before the fight. Like if you if you have a bad weight cut, um, that that's that's tough. It's physically and psychologically challenging. So how do they lower that challenge? How do they also lower the risk? So there's a big piece there and that taps into the food. A lot of them want to, you know, evaluate and assess themselves. So our strength and conditioning, um, you know, diagnostics, our sports science diagnostics is a big piece of what we do. And then medical, right? Because again, we, we have world-class practitioners that work with combat athletes every single day of the week. Um, understanding the mechanisms of injury, the best best ways to pr you know promote recovery from those injuries. If you're just kind of going down the road to your local physiotherapist that doesn't have that expertise and that body of work behind them, the fact of it is you're not getting best in class, and you're in the UFC. You sh you should be getting world class standard of care. So medical services are also a huge part that athletes really seek out and pursue. Our biggest in-service utilization, so in person, our biggest utilization is in the medical space. Our biggest remote utilization by far is in the nutrition space because we're doing remote coaching up to eight weeks out in advance of someone making weight on the scales the day before a fight. So we have to get ahead of the eight ball. We have to start doing this proactive conversation and coaching, you know, way before, you know, the competition itself. What's your thoughts in general on uh, this potentially controversial one on, on the weight cut itself and the damage it can do. And, and, and I've heard a lot of people talk about the idea that you should just weigh in before the fight. Yeah. And and then scrap. Do you think that would, what, what do you think the pros and cons to that are? 
Yeah, um, it's it's a very topic. It's a topic of great discussion, and so it should be, right? Because um, you know it can really compromise the physiology of an athlete. All right, and and touch wood, but sadly, in some lower level promotions, weight cutting has become a, yeah, you know, sadly, people have lost their lives weight cutting. Um, now that should never be the Could case. Give us listening just some context in terms of how much weight some of these in, uh, performers lose. Yeah, I mean, so we as a recommendation, so at the UFC Performance Institute, we recommend um, athletes lose. So, let me back up a little bit, right? There's the weight descent, um, which is the removal of inefficient, you know, body tissue, so body fat, all right? So that takes place over weeks and weeks and weeks, okay? That takes place over 12 to eight weeks prior to even going in the octagon. Athletes have to start to look at their body composition and lower their fat content. The weight cut is an acute process of losing weight by the removal of fiber from your gut um, and fluid from your body. Um, so that, that can be done through sweating, urination, et cetera, et cetera. And you essentially do a short-term reduction in weight, step on the scales, and then it allows you to kind of restabilize again. So when we're talking about weight cutting, we're often talking about dehydration tactics or the removal of fluid from your body and that's where in other promotions sadly athletes have done it very incorrectly um and and sadly some have lost their lives some have been transported to hospital um but it can be a very challenging situation now if done scientifically that can be a very straightforward process okay it can be a very straightforward process because what we do is we calculate the different areas of your body that we can remove that from fiber in your gut the removal of sodium from your from your you know your muscles and also glycogen carries um water in your muscles and then obviously whatever you kind of urinate out so mathematically comparing all those three four compartments within your body where we can remove fluid from we know we can make this drop over two or three days right so there's a long way of saying on a Tuesday prior to a Saturday night fight, we want our athletes to report in about 8% above their, their weight that they will actually step on the scales at. Now, 8% is a very doable number. If you come in at 6%, even better. 5%, great. All right. The lower and closer to your weigh-in, the less demanding on your body the whole process is going to be. But there are athletes that go way above that 8%, you know, 15% of someone's body weight, um, 12% on three or four days, no, you know, three or four days trying to make weight is a risky tactic. It's very challenging to do that. And you're certainly putting yourself in a compromised position. So, you know, the, the, there are those types of scenarios. But again, it's an educational piece that we're, we're trying to coach up the roster of methods how you should do this, how you should manage the longitudinal weight cut and the longitudinal weight descent and then the short-term weight cut. It's all part of the, the movement of, of education and methodology in the sport. Really interesting. In in terms of the competition it, itself, I guess it's it's the Saturday night, the, the, the big event. What are the sort of factors that, you're you're trying to really get hold of to optimize and enable that individual to peak. So most of our work on a Saturday night is done, right? You you, you got a bank it and it's got to be in the bank and you can draw on that credit, right? Um, 
it then just becomes very much, you know, a psychological management piece, right? It becomes about your your ability. And we have a saying, MMA is 90% psychology, apart from the 70% that's physical, right? So ultimately, there's a lot of mental game, there's a lot of physical game. Um, we have psychologists on our staff, they're working on things like competition anxiety, walking out in front of thousands of people in the in the arena how can i make sure that this is normal to me this is a routine i'm also going into a fist fight i've done this before i'm comfortable i've done the body of work so it's all of systems and processes of rehearsal um which largely is managed by their own coach okay Let, let's not you know that, that, that's done by their corners and their coaches um but yeah things like psychology services and working on competitive anxiety and 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 you know being present and in the moment we, we do a lot of that type of work. Our psychologists do that. Um, the bioenergetics piece is the other thing, right? I've never heard anyone come out of the octagon and say I wasn't strong enough. But I've heard lots of people come out and say my conditioning wasn't where it needed to be or I had an adrenaline dump and I just felt fatigued. I couldn't I couldn't get going. Um, so, you know, you've got to make sure that your, your warm-ups and your, your rehearsal and your sequences are on point. You've got to make sure that, you know, you've, You've tried to remove that anxiety and that adrenal um, elevation of, of, of the hormone dump. You've got to make sure that they are, you know, in a position of conditioning that will see them through three or five round fights. Um, so Saturday night, I mean, there's nothing like being around a fighter on a, on a Saturday evening going into a fight, right? That That's, that's a, I haven't had, you know, I won't say the pleasure, but I've never stepped in the octagon in that type of scenario myself, but I've been around the fighters preparing and it's a unique kind of feel. Is there, is there one particular um, moment uh, that, that you could maybe talk us through in that respect that's perhaps a highlight in terms of representing what you're saying is unique about that? For me or for the fighters, you mean? For you, like experiencing that, is there one moment that stands out, a particular fighter perhaps in terms of that, how how it should be done? Uh, not necessarily, um, because again, they all have their own they they all have their own ways of doing it. Some guys are jumping around and and, and high energy, and other people are headbutting lockers. You know what I mean? So it's like everything in between. Yeah. Um, but what you definitely see is triggers. All right, you you see people are triggered, um, and and the switch goes right. So whether that is pulling like a lot for a lot of them, it's starting to wrap their hands. So when you got, you know, when you start to put the hand wraps on and they're getting wrapped up, you can see it's all right, it's go time. The other one is, you know, pulling the gloves on because usually they'll put the hand wraps on and then they'll do some loosening, flexibility work, they'll get warm, skip, whatever it may be. Then they'll pull the MMA gloves on and then, okay, there's a, kind of another trigger. And then the, you know, the third one is kind of like when they say they get the call, all right, you're going in five minutes, you're going in two minutes, right? TV commercial. One minute, all right, let's go. And then, then they're walking out the hallway and then they're into, you know, the dark hallways in the back of these arenas out into the bright lights of wah, the noise. I mean, if that's not a trigger, I don't know what is. So it's it's just, you know, you, you start to understand psychology um, and then it's fascinating, right? Because from a high performance perspective, how can we take those composite parts of success or high performance and put them into what we do long before that moment of performance and actually get people accustomed to that. Can we use similar triggers? Can we kind of um, hack the system 
and 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 get athletes kind of thinking it through so that when they come into this scenario, it's not as big and grand and as large. It's like, oh, it's just another day at the office. You know what I mean? So that that's a fascinating kind of thing that we or I try and think about all the time. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions and thought provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now, let's get back to business. Uh, in, in terms of your time at the UFC so far, is there an athlete that stands out um, in terms of, I guess, across sport, the, the term professional, the ultimate professional? Um, that is there someone that stands out to you? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there are the 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 this is a this is a martial art, right? Mixed martial arts and martial artists tend to um, they they've come up through routine and structure um, and 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 respect. You know, you go to the dojo and sensei and your your jujitsu class is telling you about respect and you bow and you nod and you shake hands and you. So a lot of them kind of, it's not all street fighting, right? It's not like, you know, Saturday night at the bar and we'll bring that to the octagon. A lot of them are built up on structure and, and, and systems. But, um, I mean, Kamaru Usman is is a, a, a consummate professional. He's also got a, a, a wrestling background, um, you know, freestyle wrestling and collegiate sports. So, again, he's been through that collegiate program and practice times and structure and drills. Um, you know, there's so many athletes, but Kamaru springs to mind. He's always very professional in his re regeneration, his rehabilitation, looking after his body. Um, you know, Brandon Moreno, who's Mexican, he's a current flyweight world champion. Again, completely different outlook on life. This guy's like a Lego fiend and 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 loves kind of kids' toys and things, but it's like he's a cage fighter and he's a world champion. He 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 goes through very different methods, but his preparation and his rehearsal is is always you know on point and fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Valentina Shevchenko trains like no other athlete I've ever seen train before, and that's of any sport. Like in terms of the repetition, the repetition of skill over and over and over again, and every time she steps on the mats, it's this dedication to like fine tuning and perfecting all these various techniques. Like I could, I could watch her for hours on end because it's just fascinating that the resilience and the fortitude that she has to actually go through that type of training methodology. But you know, the outcomes are, are really impressive as well. There's just two or three that, that I named, but you know, the, there's a lot of guys that are dedicated to their craft. Yeah. And in terms of the individuals that come through, and obviously, ultimately, it, it's perhaps the, the most meritocratic place you could find a, an octagon. But in terms of those that do make it to the to the absolute pinnacle, that world champion spot, yeah. and those who, you know, do incredible, well, it's, it's incredible to just get to the UFC, but who perhaps get there, but sort of fizzle out. Anecdotally, is there anything you've observed that's unique about those that make it to the top versus the ones that, that don't quite get it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking the one percent of the one percent if you're in the UFC, right? Exactly. Um, it's not like we're all trying to jump in the in the octagon and, and, and fight. So that takes a certain type of individual, and I would say you've kind of made it if you if you make the UFC, you're you're at the highest level. Um, I mean, I do think it's the it's the resilience piece, and 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 you know, I could use a ton of different adjectives, and you know. But, but what you know resilience and mental and physical fortitude um i think are integral to being successful in this sport you know you've got to embrace the suck every day you go in onto the mats and it's fight or flight scenario right which is tapping into your neural you know your neural system of parasympathetic sympathetic management right so fight or flight by nature these guys are just go it's it's go time right i've got to go and fight in practice let alone in competition so the the mental demand that that places on this sympathetic arousal every single day drill even drilling let alone sparring um that takes a lot out of you emotionally psychologically and physically physically obviously and i think the best guys the top guys and girls are the ones that find a way to retain that resilience so that every single day they go on the mats they can they can apply skill acquisition all right they can apply skill acquisition because their mental and physical fortitude hasn't regressed meaning they're fatigued or they're tired or their cognition is a little bit off and therefore they don't absorb skill acquisition as quickly the best guys and girls I believe can go back on the mats every single day, retain a resilience and a fortitude that gives them this ability to to just have better opportunity to, to absorb skill acquisition. The long, like, there's a lot there. I'm just, like it's a long winded way of saying it, um, but the skill acquisition then advances them um, to having better skill sets, better awareness in different scenarios and situations. And MMA is a sport of situations, right? It changes at any moment in time. Like someone's on my neck. Now someone's on my shoulder. Now I'm up against the fence. Now I'm on the floor. Now I'm stand up striking. Like, are you comfortable in all these scenarios? Have you drilled them? Have you rehearsed them? Have you perfected them? Have you overloaded them? The best athletes in the world continue to do that at a high, high level every single day. So the skill acquisition just continues to grow. Whereas I think other people's skill acquisition gets blunted for two or three days because they either fatigue or they're worn out or they're, you know, just, just burnt out and they need kind of a rest and recovery piece. And therefore their, their skill acquisition gets kind of reduced a little bit. That's kind of my own take on it. But I think, uh, I think that's, that's a big piece of success in this sport. It's a tough, tough sport. Fascinating. And in terms of your career so far, is there a peak experience you've had? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots. There's those athletes that you, you know, you rehabilitate from a, you know, an ACL injury in a super quick time and they go back and they'll, they'll win a world championship. And you're like, wow, like that, that was that was cool. Like we were stressing out. We we're in the trenches. It's you and me. All right. I'm the coach. I'm trying to do the rehab with you. We're going to be here every day. Let's get really comfortable with each other. We're going to be spending a lot of time together. We're going to be doing some shitty stuff. Frustration is going to be through the roof. You're going to feel like you, you know, you need to quit your career. Um, but we're working to this North 
pole of of, of a world championships. And you know, certainly when I was with Great Britain Taekwondo, we had one athlete where we uh, rehabbed her in six months from her second ACL injury, um, and she won the world championships. Um, and and it was just like amazing. Um, here in the UFC, I mean, being around the Conor McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight. Um, and, and Connor doing all of his preparation with us at the Performance Institute and just the circus that that brought, you know, and then, you know. What's the, he like the, behind the, whole... the scenes in terms of that? In the Because obviously we see the, well, the movie version of Connor, right? We see it yeah. and he's a showman yeah. uh, quite clearly. Yeah. But, but what, what what is he like behind the scenes? I mean, I think, you know, he is what you see. And I think, you know, he, Connor, when it's one-to-one, like you and I talking, Connor's like very personable, great guy, witty, sharp, very quick, but really interested in you and what you're doing and where things are at. And, you know, it's just a, a dude that wants to shoot the breeze. And, you know, but Connor's also a great showman um, and he wants to demonstrate to the world that he is alpha male, right? So when when the audience grows, Connor the fighter, Connor the promoter comes out um, and, and he's the best to ever do it. Like outside of Ali, I honestly think you know Conor McGregor is is what the best showman in That's combat incredible. sport ever, right? And um, so the the you know you I mean, see two sides to Conor. Fair to say he's potentially played a big role in the growth of the sport, actually. Oh, yeah, know? absolutely. The the sport wouldn't be what it is today without Conor McGregor and others, you know, yeah. like Ronda Rousey, yeah. John Jones, Conor McGregor, um, you know, and then some of the the new you know the new school Israel Adesanya. Um, you know, Francis Ngannou as he was, and then um, yeah, it, it, there's 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 some uh, you know, there's something to be said for his promotional side versus just Connor the dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you think there was any chance he could have he could, he could have uh, done? Uh, I was trying to think of a better adjective than that, but yeah, had a proper go on uh, Mayweather. I mean, it was obviously a good scrap, but. Yeah, I mean, I think so hard, um, isn't it? because you just know if Mayweather's coming into his world, we just know what's happening in thirty seconds. Yeah, but, it's like uh, the it's like the whole chat of Tyson Fury and John Jones right now. Oh, right? Wow, yeah, and, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? You know, not no no one knows what's going to happen. I'm I'm not the expert, right? But because I'm not a, a a boxing coach, but um, you know, MMA and boxing are very different. Like if I'm a boxer, even where I'm looking, where I'm putting my eyes and looking at your offense and where my defense needs to be. I'm, I'm kind of looking at, at your kind of shoulder area and, and your head, right? Because this yeah. is where you're holding your guard. In MMA, you're more looking, you've got knees and, and kicks and feet as well as elbows and, and, and fists that are coming at you. So you kind of lower your vision to more of the chest area, um, which again, that, now you're talking about a different perception on offense and defense and um, where, your, where your trends are and your, your tells, like it, it just different sports. So, Connor did a great job, but I also yes, think yeah. that um, Floyd Mayweather was just waiting for He's him to burn out a little bit, and yeah. then um, he and then he, he yeah started stepping up. Yeah, are we great to see if the the Fury uh, Jones comes off? We shall see, but I'll tell you that that's you probably inside information. That's on that not going to happen in an octagon with with Evan. Oh, of course, it's not. No, no, okay. no. I don't think any boxer would ever do that. I mean, I I would send one of our you know 135 pound guys in against Tyson Fury, and they would win because they would find a way to. Well, there you go. Again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know, can you can you talk us through again in, in the context of your career? What what's been a moment you've had a a challenge? You're like, oh fuck, 
how we're going to get through this one. There must have been a couple of those. Yeah, I mean, well, the one the one thing which really sticks with me every single day um, is when I when I actually went to do, start my PhD. So I did my PhD in America from 2000, 2004. So I kind of up sticks and flown 5,000 miles from the UK to what was then central Indiana. Um, and on day one, I'm just meeting, you know, the, the, the guy that's going to be my professor Kramer that I spoke to about previously and all my other kind of lab mates. Um, there was seven of us in a room around a conferencing table and he went through every single one of these students that had been there previously, because I'm the new guy, um, telling them what the projects were that they're going to work on at that moment in time for this semester. And I'm sat on the end of the line and he gets, he goes all the way along the line telling everybody what they're going to do. And he gets to me and he goes, Duncan, I don't even know why you're here. I must've had a moment of weakness. And I'll never forget those words. And I was like, holy fuck. This like that, that's a great equalizer. I've just up sticks and I've come to, the US and I don't even like this guy doesn't even know what he's going to do with me or why he invited me. Um, so it was kind of a great equalizer and it kind of it, it resonates with me because you, you got to prove things all the time. Like you have to prove your worth and your value. So just because someone gave me a full ride scholarship to the US and I'm like, yeah, I've left the UK. I'm now living my dream. I'm doing a, you know, I'm living in America. This guy kind of was a great equalizer and put me back on the bottom rung from day one. It's like okay, well now I need to kind of prove myself, and I've got to go after it and and and, and do the work. So that really resonates with me. And when I did my oral defence four and a half years later, I did it showed all my data on the slides, and then the last slide was thank you, and it, it had the quote I must have had a moment of weakness. I don't even know why you're here, and it was like kind of a bit of a middle finger, like yeah, I'm. I made it. Um, yeah. So that really sticks with me. Um, and that's kind of a mantra that I, I follow. No, I love that. And in terms of, I guess, a, a topical issue again at the moment is the the concept of burnout. And you've touched about it in terms of the yeah. top athletes is that almost that ability to, to switch on perform, but then to, you, you got to switch off and, and recover quick because yeah. if you don't recover quick, you're not going to benefit from the, the catalyst you've just sort of imposed on your brain and body. Yeah. And then you do that for too long, you end up burnt out. I mean, what's your, what are the strategies that people listening to this that perhaps aren't getting in an octagon, but that are A-type motivated people who are putting shifts in in the relative crafts, whether that's in finance, the military, academia. What would you say is all that? Of this. All yeah, of this. Yeah, we're all, help. Yeah, man. I mean, listen, it's, um, it's, 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 I mean, we could have a how long discussion on this, right? Because yeah, this is a challenge in the, in the world and environment that we, we live in today. Um, especially when you're working in a sport where, you know, the perception of the, the desire to succeed is massive and the pressures to succeed are often massive. Um, there's a thousand other people that would take, my role and sit in this seat so you know the competition is huge um how, how do you you know how do you and, and then the information right like the overwhelming amount of information that we have in today's world is is just massive like that then drives you know an emotional interaction 
that like am i good enough am i worthy social media like is the worst thing for this like we all look on social media we see everyone in fucking bora bora do you know what i mean I'm like well i'm not in bora bora i'm sitting here in this office doing all this hard work so like you're always comparing and contrasting Vegas, with the yeah right <laughs> um so yeah i mean you have to purposefully consider it and i've been you know hands up i i've i've been in the hole um historically and you know i made bad mistakes of overworking of giving all my my worth to others in a service industry as a coach like i'm serving others um so yeah you've got to look at mechanisms and systems that can help you um i think i th- i personally think a very strong morning routine is critical to reset um taking your time away from what the rat race is whatever your rat race may be if you're a banker if you're a cage fighter if you're you know whatever a coach like you you need to pull yourself away from that you've got to allow kind of the down state to to happen um and what sort of routine for me is is a big one yeah what sort of things would you include in that morning routine that might help regulate some of the stress hormones that are, are produced in the sort of scenarios we described yeah, for, so for me, for me, wherever I can, my morning routine includes, you know, waking up, no, no phone for at least thirty minutes, no, no social media for at least thirty minutes after waking. Um, I try to get straight into a cold bath. Um, you know, you get that dopamine hit, two hundred fifty percent of basal dopamine levels. All right, so you kind of reset in the brain with natural endorphins, natural dopamine, not the endorphins from quick clicks and likes. Um, and in so, lay terms, what's the benefit that people will feel from that? I mean, I th- again, you, you're basically hacking your brain, right? Because if you look at um, things like uh, social media, and you know, that, that that's driving a dopamine response. You're looking for uh, validation and aff- an affirmation from someone saying, I like this, right? There's been research done that shows when you look at overcoming challenges and more h- hardship and enduring hardship, that the dopamine response is more resilient and more, more, um, more impactful over time. So using things like cold stresses or heat stresses, whatever, maybe in a sauna, um, you know, you 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 get uh, much more of a natural um, endorphin and, and dopamine. That's more sustainable. Correct. Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Um, so you know, I use cold plunge, which they're kind of vogue and fashionable at the minute. But again, I've used them because psychologically, they I, I feel better um, throughout the day. I don't get as many dips in my energy levels. I feel clearer. Um, I'm not a coffee drinker. Um, so I use that for kind of arousal and waking me up. And I also massively use it for breathing. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's about managing the stress response, right? So if you do that first thing in a day, you've got to manage your parasympathetic nervous system and activate your parasympathetic breathing systems to relax in the cold bath. Now that is now setting me up for the rest of the day. I've already turned on the parasympathetic activation, which as I then come into work and I get around the chaos of fighting and combat and workload and emails and all this other stuff. All right. I've sequentially reduced the stress levels. Cortisol levels are highest in the morning. I can reduce those with that input of the, the cold bath. And now I can start, you know, elevating the arousal over time before I go back to bed. So cold bath i i do a, a honey lemon and and hot and warm water uh, drink essentially flush the system um 
And then I do like a five minute, well, five minute, five to 10 minute stretch kind of yoga. I do more of a meditation, yoga, mobility uh, routine, get the body moving. And then I'm kind of set up for the day. So again, it's just, it's not the whole answer. I'm just kind of giving you an example of what oh, I try brilliant. to do first thing. It's really um, useful. But, but these, it, it's again, you're trying to hack your physiology um, so that you don't wake up and you're just like, oh shit, I'm got it's go time. I'm I'm charged and I'm, and redlining from the get go. And we need to allow the physiology, the ebbs and flows of sympathetic and parasympathetic ups and downs. And would you say it's fair to say the act of engaging in, whether it's uh, uh you know cold heat, um, or or even a breathing exercise is acts as almost a constraint that activates or potentiates that parasympathetic nervous system to kick in mm -hmm. a bit like um stretching before going for a run yeah correct uh, absolutely you using it's a tool right it's a tool like using a massage like a vibrating massage gun to remove tone in my muscle it, you're just using cold water as a tool that that's not the answer it's not to necessarily flush the lymph system or whatever no i'm using it as a tool to make my brain think holy shit this is this is cold this is hard i don't want to be here and now i have to manage my cognition to actually move my brain and my mind and the downstream regulation of my physiology into a different space so it's just a tool it's a mechanism now another active ownership again you know, there, right there's well. some great there's some great research around around the hardship and the challenge that you have to go through and the bigger the challenge the greater the physiological reward from a, a, a you know a an endocrine response and and that is almost a nice segue into the physical aspect because again for for people listening who I imagine 80% of the people listening will probably, in terms of their training protocols, be looking to build a bit of muscle, cut body fat, be healthy. In terms of that intensity, how important is, is intensity in terms of stimulated the neuroendocrine response to generate that? I mean, I know you're, I mean, you, you are a, a wizard in, 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 I guess, the neuroendocrine system and testosterone specifically. I know the research you've published is, the mountain high yeah well i think what i would say is um intensity is more a, a i mean yes it does um it does address kind of endocrine responses downstream stress responses related to an intensity or a volume exposure but intensity as a paradigm actually probably taps in more to the neural system all right and i think there's a lot of good there's a lot of good research out there now around things like um microdosing training you know, like microdosing strength exposure and what what you can do to, you know, it's, it's just, I want to suggest living in the microdosing of training is the best training paradigm, all right? You need to do a body of work. But in certain scenarios, particularly with athletes, if they're in a condensed uh, season, a, a phase of the season, or they're in a competition phase, like our guys when they go into fight camp, like where everything ramps up, wherever you can get most ROI on your training investment and make it efficient, that's probably a good strategy to adopt for a period of time. Now they are all intensity related. So you, there's a ton of research where you can pull up to 60% of volume um, and frequency out of a training week 
But if you maintain the intensity, um, you can actually maintain and in some cases improve performance uh, across time. So it's one of those ones where intensity um, is, is really driving the neural system um, if you're looking at performance maintenance. Now, when you look at endocrine responses, they are usually downstream of a stress insult. So again, I talk about dopamine with cold exposure, same thing to physical exertion and exercise. You're essentially stressing the system and consequent to that stress, there is a, a host of different regulatory characteristics that happen um, in it, whether that be testosterone or cortisol or aldosterone or whatever it may be throughout the body, Things are upregulating. Glucose is obviously the, the the an insulin. Excuse me, insulin is, is kind of the most tightly regulated um, hormone in our body. All of these things at any moment in time are changing across time. So, the, the 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 I guess the synopsis of all of that is exercise is a stress, and we can also use other stresses: cold, heat, you know, whatever it may be. Um, lack of energy like so like feeding so looking at fasting strategies like that's a stressor right your body's going to respond in a particular way um they're all that we can use all of these tools effectively to create a physiological adaptation and response that can have beneficial help to our body um, or our, our approach to you know optimization brilliant and then removing some of the junk in terms of the, the phone ban or the social media ban that gives yeah. you a quick short and i think that's that, yeah, that that's that's the world we live in now and and you know that you know there's going to be a ton of research on that in the next five to ten years you watch um oh, yeah. of the potential negative consequences of social media and you know sadly and again i hate to be the doom and gloom guy, but sadly people take their lives based on a a, a negative remark or a lack of likes on social media now like how have we ended up there? Like that, that's, that to me is shocking. So, I mean, now listen, I, I use social media. I get pissed off with social media. Some social media is huge educational, can be a great resource because it's at the click of a button and it's at your hands. But the, the management of this, I think we've all got a personal responsibility to figure out what's my threshold. Like what's my threshold of engagement and what are the consequent triggers that going above that threshold, um, occur um, imparts on me um and that might take some time to figure out but it's an important thing i think in your day-to-day -day optimization conversation and is there anything you do is there in terms of an evening routine because obviously sleep i know sleep sleep something that's so it's interesting because i probably you know I'm, I'm probably worse on an evening because again everyone has a everyone has a circadian rhythm to their their um their efficiency right so i i'm not like an early riser I'll rise, I'll wake about 6.30, something like that. That's my normal body clock. But I tend to be able to work later in the day, like later, late at night, nighttime, my work um, productivity actually is more efficient, or I found it that way. Um, the problem is that all the physiological information, the research shows that whether it's blue light or whether it's, um, you know, putting stress at the end of the day um, or whether it's kind of long sitting and, and or work hours, that that's, that's actually counterproductive, right? So I have to consciously manage the switch off of my day because I would just sit there all evening working and get things done. Um, so my morning routine is more, not necessarily a routine, but it's like, you got to stop. 
because I, I get in my flow later in the day, um, which is interesting. Everyone's different. My wife gets up at 5 a.m. and she's like sharp as a button um, at, at 5 a.m. and she's on it. Um, so everyone's different. It's trying to figure out what, what your rhythm looks like and then just being aware of what's going to promote good behavior and good practice and what's compromising your personal health, well-being and performance. Have you got any thoughts on sort of supplements? Good. Um, I I, I'm not a supplement expert, I will say, but I'm around, you know, guys that are here. Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the supplement we work, we do is, is with with the fighters is around, you know, the brain health piece um, and and looking at, um, you know, minimizing the effects of brain injury. Um, So it's quite nuanced um but we've got some really good paradigms in there looking at beta alanine and things for intermittent exercise as a as a really good um you know conduit to performance optimization alongside creatine and things like that but uh yeah we look at beta alanine for the management of the metabolic environment um but just on a day-to-day basis whether it's magnesium or thionine and some of these things going to sleep you know melatonin whatever it may be um i think you've just got to you know figure out what works for you. Um, but that's, that's again, a, a whole other minefield that I'm not the, uh, the expert in. So. I'm going to ask you another question in this area, because I know you have done so much research on testosterone, but what are your thoughts on, on TRT? Again, it's getting more and more um, airtime, uh, especially in the UK. And uh, you see, you know, are there any sort of, I don't know, I know obviously you being in the States, it's a lot yeah. more sort of used there. What, what are your thoughts as someone who studied this hormone and, yeah, I mean, listen, it's, uh, it, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone who's a professional athlete. <laughs> um, of course. And, right, from the anti-doping perspective. Um, I think what I would say is that, again, it's kind of topical to what we're talking about, right? And Dan Gardner is a, is a great um, a great resource on this one. Um, he's got some really good stuff around TRT. In as much as th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a pyramid of, things that you need to go to right so you don't immediately go to trt you got to evaluate are you sleeping well right is your sleep habits in a good spot that you are optimizing the physiological responses that happen during sleep okay if your sleep's on point what's your diet like are you using certain food uh, groups um that, that that promote testosterone um release are you exercising regularly a la my kind of research um, you know, are you promoting the stimulus of testosterone or anabolic anabolism in your body? Um, you know, and then you get to, okay, well, if, if, if I've ticked all of these boxes, now I can start to look at the value of supplementation, uh, or in the case of, you know, um, pharmaceutical TRT, um, as kind of the, the last thing, like, I think in, you have to go through the process. Now, people are always going to you know, abuse a, a mindset, like, and they're going to say, well, what, it's done the French now, and they're going to go straight to, um, you know, TRT, right? Um, that's that's a personal choice. And I think, you know, some of the some of the strategies and the companies that are doing that are very well regulated, and some of them are not, okay? And you've got to be cognizant of who you're working with. But we know more about the dosing strategies for those types of things. We know more about the downstream negative effects um, of those things as well as the positive effects. And I think some of these companies are regulating that, which is a great job rather than me just being in a 
a minefield on my own and, and, and trying to figure it out. Like people can help me with the dosing strategies, which is critical in the, in the process of TRT. But I think, again, for me, I want to go through with anyone that I'm advising, I want to go through that process of saying, well, you know, do you have suppressed circadian rhythms? Are your sleep patterns bad? How's your libido? Um, do you have a good libido or a poor libido? What's, what's the consequences of your uh, work day and your stress levels? How are you, how many times a week are you exercising? All these other things that can help promote testosterone and, and anabolic environments in your body for growth and long, you know, longevity. Before I would go to say, all right, well, we need to start thinking about, you know, supplement supplementation strategy with TRT. It's a really useful model to use. And in terms of your career now, Duncan, what's most important to you in your in in your role now? Yeah, man, that's a wow, deep seated values question. Like, look at that one. Um, I mean, listen, I've still got, I, I still have the ambition to pursue success. I, I want to, I want to be around success, and you know that that for me is in an athletic environment. You know, I want to win. I want to be around winners. I want to look at how we continue pushing the envelope and doing things you know differently and better um and 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 that's kind of my extrinsic validation is like oh yeah you're you're around successful athletes people that are winning fights or winning championships or whatever it may be like that that's my extrinsic drive um and that goes back to kind of your very first question why like why did i get into this thing intrinsically i think what i want is you know you know hopefully I'm recognized as someone that's helping just move the, the field forwards. I think the field of strength and conditioning is very dogmatic. I think it's very set. When I look at, you know, other industries like architecture or design or technology, the, these, these, these industries seem to move faster. They don't, they don't get stuck in, in one process. Now I feel like I'm having the same conversations now that was 10 years ago. I'm like, why are we just, stuck in this same conversation we know it there's research there's information let's just believe it and let's move on let's go to another domain um so I, you know my personal values are you know about kind of being a contributor you know i want to be seen as someone that's number one approachable um you know that, that's someone that you can approach in the industry and that will you know won't stand on airs and graces I'm, I, I think i'm a pretty honest straight up guy do you know what i mean um, but also hopefully someone that people feel like they I, I help them in their careers and their processes. And um, I continue to do that and support other people, um, you know, navigate the industry. And what are you most excited about in terms of the UFC over the next few years? Well, I mean, listen, we're opening up more more facilities, more centres, and that that's always exciting. And I mean, like... We opened up the facility in Shanghai, China in 2019 and talk about like just cultural enlightenment, like how different it is over there. Now we're going to Mexico City in October. And again, same thing, just a diff, like build, building new facilities, putting in new systems, recruiting new staff, a new team. That, that's fun to me. Like I like building things. I like creating systems and building operations that are perceived as working very well and might be a, a benchmark or a standard that aspire to that. That's, that's a driver for me. Like the UFC performance Institute didn't exist. And I was employee number one, given the blank piece of paper. And they said, all right, you go and 
build this thing and it seems to be going pretty well touch wood okay um so i i i get off on that that's what excites me but doing that in a different territory a different marketplace whether it's in the middle east or in australia or in europe or brazil or wherever it may be um that's always london soon or uk (laughs) not any not anytime soon i I can't tell you about london so that's sad to hear yeah it's a I wanted to get your advice. Like you're, you're someone who, who in the in the performance space, reputation precedes yourself. And I really want you to answer this question for people that are listening now, who are perhaps um, not performing at the level they'd like to perform, and that deep down they know they're capable of, but they're perhaps struggling to just get that ball rolling. Mm. what's your advice to someone who's dedicated pretty much your life to the performance space? What, 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 what would your advice be to that person? Yeah. I mean, it's the 1% every day. You, you just got to try and be 1% better every day. Keep moving forwards. Um, and with that mentality comes the behavioral patterns and the behavioral changes and it's like an investment, right? It's like investment banking. You, you, you're you going to put in a pound or a dollar and in a year's time, that's going to be $10. Then that $10 will become $100,000. Like it's just exponentially grows. But the the challenge is always the first step, right? You don't look at climbing Everest and say, well, I want to go from here to there. Like that's, that's no mountaineer does that, all right? It's one step at a time. Um, and it sounds very cliche, but even with athletes that are seasoned professionals, we've got to get 1% better every day. Like we've just got to try and be better. We've got to be a better version of ourselves. You've also got to embrace the fact that you can't be naive. Like the world doesn't offer you, the world doesn't offer you anything. It doesn't owe you anything. Same thing when I went and the guy said, why are you even here? I don't, I don't know why you're here, right? Like, so, you know, it's it's about educating yourself. You have to be somewhat informed. So if you're overweight or if you're deconditioned and not working out, or if you had a bad diet, like no one no one's gonna give it to you. You need to at least get some awareness of the process. Um and that's where you move from being a victim, like, oh well, the world is against me. You can't sit in a victim mentality. You have to work in a growth mindset mentality and one percent is still growth right so for me it's about when you're struggling when you're in a hole when you're burnt out when you're stressed out you think you're in the wrong job you're not paid enough you're you know people don't like you whatever it may be you got to find those one percents you got to find those things that will say actually today i'm going to get better at this i'm going to learn this i'm going to just google all right how do i remove body fat and I might read one paragraph. Well, that's 1% better, right? So that, that's the mentality that I try to adopt. I think, you know, by being 1% better, you also understand when you're worse or when you're in a bad place, right? So if I educate myself more, when I start to slide or when I start to go downhill, I'm actually more informed to recognize that that's happening, or to recognize that actually I've got to stop that. I've got to reverse that process. So it always comes back to for me to this this one percent mentality. Brilliant. Thanks for sharing that. 
I want to sort of finish off the conversation with a few more sort of, sort of more quick fire questions. Um, yeah. And I want to start with, well, number one, greatest team of all time. Holy shit. Greatest team of all time. I mean, it's got to be the, it's got to be the, uh, do you mean for, for winning or for just like, these are quick fire questions. Here I'm a scientist. Yeah. Trying to so the greatest team of all time, the New Zealand All Blacks. Okay. Right? Because the mystique that goes with that organization, unbelievable. Greatest team of all time, the Chicago Bulls that won all those t- titles. Right. So if you're looking at success, but for me, the greatest team of all time is the All Blacks, just because you hear the, the word the All Blacks and you're like, oh, I know what yeah. that means. There's something special with that word, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I don't put it on like a oh the 1947 you know Newcastle United team. No, it's like the All Blacks for me is the best what, team. Do you know what I heard about the All Blacks? It was really interesting actually. Was that when they looked to reset way back when before they became the absolute giants in in world rugby? Um, the hacker used to be some sort of silly little dance that they yeah, didn't yeah, yeah. pay much attention to, and as part of this reset and going back to first principles of what makes us unique. They sort yeah. of uncovered and unearthed this this iconic uh, sport. You know, the, the hacker. I mean, it's it's an iconic yeah. uh, moment in elite sport. Full stop, isn't it? Almost recognised by anyone around the world. There's nothing else like it. Um, no, I've loved that. I've, I've been uh, when I was with the Great Britain basketball team. It wasn't rugby, but the the basketball team. We played in New Zealand. They did the hacker on the on the court. We were lined mm-hmm. up and we were watching the New Zealanders do the hacker. I mean, it's in. It's yeah it, yeah, yeah, it gets you right. It's it's yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Else. Yeah, greatest leader of all time. Oh my god, that's tough. Tough question. Tough question. Greatest leader of all time. Have you seen the like the Winston Churchill film? Yeah. I mean, like, it's it's interesting, right? I don't know if he's the greatest leader, but I'm just, like, going yeah, through yeah. my mind. Like, when you... He's a bit of a... Cra- like, he's a bit crazy, right? And yeah. and then found out a way to make it work for him. Um, you know, you, there's wartime leaders, there's sports leaders. Uh, you know, the, the one person that... I'm not big on celebrity. I don't really get bothered by celebrity that much. But I did some work at Manchester United, and when Alex Ferguson walked in, there was just a there was an, an aura about this guy that was unlike unlike anyone else I've been around. It was yeah. very it was very bizarre. I've never felt that before. Yeah. Okay, then, and and then greatest athlete of all time. Um. So many, right? So many. I mean, it's what what you define great by. Uh, Who jumps to mind? Well, I mean, you, you you go through the regulars of Muhammad Ali, you know, Michael Jordan, Jonah Lomu, yeah. you know, like like you start thinking about who who was just like changed the game, like who who changed the game, the needle, and yeah, I mean, I think Jordan changed the game. I think Muhammad Ali probably changed the game. Um, yeah. Well, it's, Steve Redgrave. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Incredible. That's a guy I spent a lot of time with Steve and um 
he's he's a great individual to talk to, but the feat that he did of five Olympic gold medals has never been repeated, right? So yeah, it's incredible. Over five different Olympic games, like that's freaking resilience. Something else, eh? Like unreal. <laughs> and the challenges along the way as well. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Okay, we'll go. We'll, we'll spin it back to some just quick personal stuff. Favorite movie? Uh, Gladiator. Brilliant shout. Favorite series? Uh, not really big TV. Homeland. Ah, nice book. Uh, I mean, I would you say Legacy, right? Based on what we're right. what we're yeah, talking yeah, about, yeah. But, you know, closely followed up by um, the gold mine effect. Okay, yeah, great book. Quote. Quote. Um, Is there a quote? You can't, be disappointed, you can't be disappointed by the results of the work that you didn't put in. Oh, I love that one. Beautiful. Last question. If there was one message you could drill into society at the moment, what would that be? Love each other. Beautiful. Duncan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation. I think people are going to get so much value out of this. No worries. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. It was fun. <laughs> Speak soon. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. Now, go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now, go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. Great, we get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. 
Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.